So if you guys want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 20, working our way through the word. We are uh, in Jesus's passion week and the brutality is over. Um, Jesus has suffered. He has been betrayed. He has been um, beaten, bruised, mocked, scorned, put on trial, falsely accused, marched to the place of execution, Golgotha, the place of the skull, nailed to that Roman cross, sat there for some six hours or hung there for some six hours, struggling for breath and for air, uh, bones out of joint and uh, joints out of socket, and uh, until finally he, in his own strength, gave up his spirit, saying, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And as uh, a matter of time went on, two men we studied, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus were responsible for removing his body from the cross and preparing it for burial. We studied all of that last week. And if you just flip back a page, it may even be on the same page in John 19:40. It says, "Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury." Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid and so i encourage you to listen to the last few teachings at calvary primeville and to listen to the process of the trials and the beatings and all that that means and prophecy fulfilled and what jesus did in absorbing the wrath of god towards sin and uh and then listen to last week's where we began to get into this burial process, but we do see that Joseph uh, and uh, Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and that custom uh, coming from the Middle East of some 100 pounds of spices um, packed around the body after it's been cleaned up to help in that burial process to sort of provide some honor to the body made in the image of God uh, to provide a place for mourners to go and, and weep um, without being overcome by the aromas and the stenches. And it seems to be in history that the more honor that that person uh, had towards him, the more spices were placed upon that person. And the book of John tells us that it was some hundred pounds of spices. Now, uh, interesting historical tidbits here that where Golgotha was, on Mount Moriah, the place of the skull, uh, where he was crucified, there was a garden. Okay, so interesting thing, a place of a skull, and within that same area, a garden. And in the garden, there was a brand new tomb, just rolled off the assembly line, right? Freshly hewn, if you will, you know? And uh, a new tomb. A tomb in which no one had been laid. Uh, this is very interesting to know that. We've got a couple pictures for you. Here, oh, oh, hey, that'll wake you up. Don't touch that again. We'll keep the hand away. Um, here we have what's called Gordon's Tomb in North Jerusalem. 
Uh, we'll go here next November. Gordon to- Gordon's tomb is a possible place uh, that could be Jesus' tomb. There's a lot of interesting things that would show this to be uh, the tomb of Jesus. And about, I want to say a, stay a stone's throw away, but really more like a, a really skilled football player's football throw away, is um, one location that many have called Golgotha. If you want to flip to that picture, it's called the Place of the Skull. Um, it's probably an eighth of a mile away from the Garden Tomb. Of course, this rocky cliff and outcropping uh, in the right light uh, at first glance looks like a skull there if you look at the bottom right. If the camera was to go down a little bit, you'd see a whole lot of buses. Okay, There's actually a bus stop right there in this area. Uh, believed to have been a place of execution north of the city gate. And man, for so long, I've just been like, this is the spot, you know, Gordon's tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. The neat place about these places is that there's humble Christians that operate the area and they just say, whether it is or isn't, we don't really care. Jesus is risen from the dead and that's what matters. Uh, Another place that does have a lot of historical and archaeological evidence of being the place where the... um, Golgotha was, or the place of the garden tomb is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. We have some pictures uh, of this for you as well. So uh, Constantine having plowed over the temple of Venus that had been set up here um, after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, plowed over it, set up a different church, and now we have uh, two different uh, churches and cathedrals that... Um, Welcome to Calvary Chapel, everybody. About every five minutes we're going to do that, just to make sure you guys are paying attention. Let me know if there's something I need to do. We have a brand new mic today, and we're kind of dialing in um, the nitty-gritties, all right? So uh, you can see two different places. A lot of people choose on their tours to go to the Garden Tomb because it's not as like densely packed with a lot of orthodoxy and orthopraxy going on. Um, but there's really good evidence, actually, that this may be the location as well. Doesn't matter. What matters is... Jesus is alive, okay? He's alive. He's not there. Why are you looking for the living among the dead is what uh, the angel told the women. Uh, The beautiful thing is, is that there was a Jesus. He did live and he was buried. Where he was buried was a garden, okay? Interesting that at the Gordon's tomb, at the garden tomb, there's a 10,000 gallon cistern literally within a stone's toss of the tomb, believed to have been a rich man's garden. Inside, and if you want to shoot to the inside real quick, uh, the place where a body would have been laid seems to have been chiseled out at the foot a little bit for a body to have hastily been put in last minute. Whether or not that's actual or not, uh, it does seem that there was some hastiness in the preparation of this rich man's tomb. Uh, But Mark chapter 15, verses 40 thick, 46 through 47. I was with Alan Teske this week. He was telling me about his trip to Barcelona. And he's like, except they say it Barcelona. <laughs> like, Barcelona, that's fun. Um, so anyway, it's Mark 15, 46 through 47. Uh, it says in verse 47 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, observed where he was laid. So in this burial process, in the hubbub and bubbub, on preparation day, before the Sabbath, when the body needed to get put in the ground, in the midst of it all, there were two women who were very cognitive and aware 
that this is the body of someone we love and we are not going to lose him. We're going to make sure we know where he is. And so they observed and took note of where he was laid. And so verse 42 of our text tells us, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. This is fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that it was with the rich at his death where they would find his grave. This is in fulfillment of prophecy from Matthew 26, 12, when Mary would anoint Jesus' feet with oil and tears and wipe his feet with her hair. And Jesus said of Mary that in pouring the fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Or of Mark 14, 8. She did what she could. She came beforehand to anoint my body for burial. It's important to take time to think about and consider the burial of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 tells us the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You want to know how to preach the gospel? Just go out and tell people, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was necessary. The Bible spoke about that someone had to come and die. The just for the unjust. It's biblical. It's scriptural. That Christ would come and die for our sins. But it's also part of the gospel. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. That he was buried. According to the scriptures. He was buried. The burial is important. Because without the burial. You can't have the resurrection. Without the death. You can't have a burial. Without the burial, you can't have a resurrection. It's important to note that Jesus died. There's a lot of strange theories out there that say he never died, but he simply swooned from the pain, the loss of blood, the agonizing uh, suffocation, and that he just swooned. And then after he was pried off the cross and packed into the tomb and, and anointed and, and packed with spices and lined with strips of linen, that after a couple days in the tomb, the cool air just kind of brought him back to life again. And then somehow after having been severely beaten and surviving the Roman phlegorum scourging with the cat of nine tails, which most people normally die from that point, but then packed his own 90-pound crossbar to Golgotha where he hung on the cross for six hours and was pierced through with the Roman spear where blood and water came out, evidence of a blown-up heart cavity. But then after he was packed into that tomb, just all of a sudden, he's alive for the very first time, you know, and he thought he could fly. So he busted out of his grave clothes and he found his way in the darkness over to a two-ton Roman stone and he broke the seal of the Roman's uh, waxy seal, pushed that two-ton stone away. One gospel says it was found at a distance, waking up some 15 to even more Roman soldiers, Navy seals of their day, beat them all up with some incredible judo chop moves, beat them all up and then ran out of the garden, you know, to find the disciples and then be hidden away to sort of, you know, get healed back up and then never be found or heard from again. Okay, so there's that idea. All right. Um, or he died, which is a pretty easy thing to do. Okay, He died. He was buried all according to what the Bible had to say. And then he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, Matthew 27, 59 tells us a little bit about the backstory of his burial and a little bit about how that swoon theory or the theories of uh, the disciples stealing the body away, 
that it's a bit ridiculous. In Matthew 27, 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb. So once again, brand spanking new, shiny and polished and ready to go. Okay. Whitewashed, you might say. It was hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. And it's, it is fun to go to Gordon's tomb because whether or not it's the actual tomb, uh, it does have many of the same aspects of what you would read about. In fact, there's even a trough or a track for a two-ton stone to roll in front of the door. And, uh, and you, you'll be there. You can stand and you can touch the track and just see how it all would have worked. And uh, there, this big stone was rolled uh, against the door of the tomb and they departed and then 61 helps us with our text today. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary, and they were sitting opposite the tomb. This kind of helps us look at Mark's gospel that where they observed where the tomb was. They're sitting across it. Oh yeah, okay, wow, man, garden, new tomb, stones throw away, or Sabbath day journey from uh, the place of Golgotha. It goes on to say, the next day which followed the day of preparation the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So then the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Okay, so what we have here is the enemies of Jesus who killed him, anticipating his words that he spoke, that he would rise from the dead. So they prepare for it. He said he was going to rise from the dead, and that charlatan, that crazy guy, he's, going to, he's got some scheme. They're going to come and steal the body away, and they're going to make some big hubbub about it. And so we've got to seal that thing, rock steady, rock solid, put soldiers around it. We don't want no hanky-panky happening. We want everyone to know he's dead. Okay. Meanwhile, the disciples are not thinking about the resurrection at all. Even though they'd heard about the resurrection time and time again from the lips of Jesus where he said, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed by my friends and I'm going to be delivered up and falsely accused and beaten and mocked and scorned and I'm going to be killed, but don't worry, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Were the disciples walking around like, it's the beginning of day one, you know, we've got a little Easter advent calendar up here like day one, there's only three days, but we put a little thing in the little pocket like... Two more days to go. No, they're not thinking about it at all. They're like, we've got to bury him. We've got to pack him with spices because he's going to start stanking. And, you know, they're just like thinking of all the other things. And they're hiding away in fear of their lives because they think they're next. Okay? Meanwhile, the enemies of his are saying, he was saying he's going to rise from the dead. There's something's going to happen. We've got to get in front of it. And the Romans as well said, all right, let's get in front of it. You have a guard. Leon Morrison said, To a deep-seeing eye like that of John, the proximity here between the tomb and Golgotha is more than a coincidence. John felt that there was an inward harmony between the garden and the cross. Tasker says, the fall of the first Adam took place in a garden. Remember that? The Garden of Eden. 
It was in a garden that the second Adam redeemed mankind from the consequences of Adam's transgression. Charles Spurgeon tells us that it was a tomb in which no one had been laid. If they had buried him in an old tomb, the Jews would say that he touched the bones of some prophet or holy man and so come to life. So let's see the story. Let's see what goes on. Let's see what happens. In chapter 20, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Again, the good news is is that at this point, Jesus' suffering is finished. He's no longer in pain. He's no longer in agony. He is, uh, that moment has been done. And then you've got his followers who, their master seems to have been some kind of condemned criminal. How could that have happened? The resurrection is going to end up vindicating him as someone who is no less the Messiah, the son of God, who he claimed to be. So Mary, first day of the week, goes to this tomb early. I want you to think about this before we get into it. We're going to read a little bit from the synoptics, and we're going to see some differences of account between Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay? And it's something that you got to be settled in your heart before you get into Bible reading, that the Bible is inspired by God, okay? It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians tells us, or as uh, or 1 Timothy tells us, as 1 Peter tells us, holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit or as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, okay? These were men of holiness. These were men of integrity. These were men who wrote in their own styles and in their own personalities um, the infallible, inerrant word of God. So one word as we get into this is that the Bible is inspired by God, all right? Holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Um, Second thing I want you to to remember as we get into this is the Bible is inerrant, okay? Inspired and inerrant. And inerrant means that it is without error, okay? Now, we go back to the original manuscripts for that pure inerrancy, but the beautiful thing is such great care has been given to us in the translations as we've gone throughout the years that there is not any need for doubt or worry as you get into what's called textual criticism, okay? There are many people out there who are critics of the Bible and they mock the Bible saying, oh, there's been so many translations that we don't even know what it really ever said. That's not true. We have enough evidence to see that it is very accurate to the original, actually more accurate than any other historical document that's ever existed, ever, ever, ever. Even the most um, popular and taught manuscripts in universities and colleges today, they can't even hold a candle to how accurate the scriptures are in the Bible are, okay? So now when you get to these moments like um, the different accounts of the resurrection and John actually being quite different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you have to start asking like, so what happened? Well, whatever happened was John wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit and whatever happened was the Bible is inerrant. John was one of Jesus' disciples, the disciple that Jesus loved. God is true, and God's word is true, and so what John wrote is true, okay? So we just settle that in our hearts as we dig in, but then we begin to look at the writings were for different purposes, 
Okay, Matthew was showing that Jesus is king. Mark was showing Jesus the servant. Luke was showing that Jesus was an actual man who lived on this earth and breathed and suffered and died. And John's whole point is to show that, show that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he's writing so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in his name. So each writer has a different purpose that he's writing. He's coming from a different viewpoint to illustrate different things. Each writer had different information or was it the scene at a different time? If you will, imagine some sort of a parade. And we all love a good parade, don't we? Lindsay always jokes that Prineville has a parade for every single holiday on the calendar and even those that aren't on the calendar, you know? Like, we got a parade every week and everyone just, you know, the pet parade, you know? And you got the chihuahua in the wheelchair, you know? And he's just, like, cruising, pushing with his front feet, you know? And everyone's like, guy's got his fish tank on an old Red Rider, you know, radio flyer, whatever it's called, you know? With a BB gun. That's a Red Rider. I think I got the Red Riders and the radio flyers. Okay, but... Uh, so imagine you're in, you're at a parade and you're watching uh, the parade and, you know, someone's writing a newspaper article from the front of the parade and everybody's there and everyone's all dolled up and dressed up and it is so wonderful and the parade begins and begins to go through town and, and then someone's watching the parade from the Goodyear blimp, you know, we have had that come to Prineville. I don't know if you've ever seen it here, but no, it's never happened, you know, but from a blimp's viewpoint, so they're watching everything from the top. And they're recording different things. And then someone may be at the end of the parade. And he's recording from the end of the parade for different purposes. But, you know, halfway through the parade, the old jalopy blew a tire and had to bow out and bounced off over the curb and hit a fire hydrant and caused a whole bunch of havoc over here. Over here, the cheerleader was being tossed in the air and fell and sprained her ankle. And so she's being hauled up over this way. Over here, you know, the horse left a little prize of a... Screaming Apple Derby in the middle of the road. And so, you know, the guys had to come with a, had to come with a, a shovel. And, you know, and so there's just all kinds of different things happening. And why wasn't this guy there? When the, and so there's, there are explanations that are fair that show we don't really know exactly what happened except that somehow this all happened in the midst of it. Okay? It's doable. All right? So we're going to get into it. We got Mary. Right? We've got John recording her as the first one. At the tomb early. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. There's a song right now that the kids love, you know. Um, thunder, feel the thunder, lightning, then the thunder, you know. And so uh, teaching my, my young ones, Titus and Tatum, homeschool dad here, trying to teach them the days of the week. I'm like, Sunday. Sunday, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday. And, and believe it or not, that is how our children know the days of the week. There's two of each of them. And, uh, and so this, this, that was a year and a half ago. And now they're still like, when's youth group? What's well, on Wednesday? Wednesday. Wednesday, Thursday. You know, okay. So here we have the first day of the week. Always been valuable to the church ever since the early, it was Sunday, okay? It was Sunday, also known as Christ, from Christians as Resurrection Day. And from this day forward, with Mary Magdalene being there at the tomb, the early church began to assemble on Sunday in remembrance of the celebration of the work of the resurrection, that he is not dead He's alive. And from this point on, they begin to call in the early church Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 1. 
Uh, you read about uh, John, the revelator, being in the spirit on the Lord's day when God gave him the vision of the revelation or the apocalypse, okay? You read in 1 Corinthians about the early church assembling on the first day of the week, and when they assembled together, they were to give generously um, and, and give their tithes and give their offerings there on the first day of the week. Uh, the Didache, or early church discipleship books, uh, used to say from like the first century that on the first day of the week, they would assemble for the word of God, for sacraments, for communion, for baptism, and, uh, and that the, the tribe of Christians would continue in meeting there on the first day of the week. Now, it's a remarkable thing that all four gospels here introduce their respective resurrection accounts by specifying that it was the first day of the week rather than the third day after the crucifixion, despite Jesus' passion predictions, okay? Uh, Carson says, the reason is disputed, but it may have to do with the desire to present the resurrection of Jesus as the beginning of something new, okay? There was something new happening on this day. And John and Matthew and Mark and Luke all wanted their readers to know it was on Sunday, okay? There's no indication that anyone visited the tomb on Saturday. Interesting. No flowers, nothing, you know? Everyone was pretty much, they were, there was some hiding, there was some grief, there was some mourning. They were gone, not expecting a resurrected Jesus. Nothing on Saturday, as far as we know, no indication of that. But here comes Mary on Sunday, Mary Magdalene, going to the tomb early while it's still dark. You might note that the first witness of Jesus's resurrection was a woman. Not only a woman, but a former woman of ill repute who had been possessed by a number of demons. Okay. Luke indicates Mary Magdalene is one of the women who would attend the Lord and the disciples during his Galilean ministry and would provide for him out of her means. He mentions that it was out of her that seven demons had gone out. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce writes, it's from John's resurrection narrative that we get the clearest picture of her. And we are left wishing that we knew much more about her, especially about her subsequent career, than we do. Legend is very willing to fill the gap left by factual records, but the only positive value of legend is in its confirmation of the impression of her devotion and enterprise which the gospel narrative gives. Now, if one were going to make up a story for their own religious purposes and make up a doctrine for themselves uh, and perhaps need to be false witness to testify about it, they would not have used a woman in this day and age, let alone this type of woman, her former career, or her past experience with the dark arts, you know, or with the demons, okay? Celsius was an, an or Celsus was an anti-Christian polemicist of the latter second century. And he dismisses the resurrection account or the resurrection narrative because it was based, I quote, on the hallucination of a hysterical woman, okay? And yet because the Bible is true 
and it's writing truly what happened, John's not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to lie about it. Uh, he's going to say, well, a woman was the first one to see him, and so I'm going to write that it was a woman, and that it was Mary Magdalene. And, you know, and uh, I don't know if you guys have gotten to see the Jungle Cruise yet, you know, on Disney or whatever, but the Jungle Cruise at the beginning, I'm not going to spoil anything, you know, but at the beginning, you've got a man up in front of a historical council, an archaeological council, trying to convince that council that they need to go to the Amazon and find some certain treasure, right? And uh, then you notice that the man is reading really hard from the note cards as he's reading it, uh, showing that he doesn't really own the information. He, whatever it was, was passed on to him. Meanwhile, up in the mezzanine is a lady with a low hat on, quoting from her lips what he's reading from the note cards, because clearly it's come from her heart, and she knows the information. But the man is down there presenting it because maybe the historical society will receive it coming from a man's lips. You know, you have to fake it till you make it right. And in this case, there's no faking going on. Like, nope, here's what happened here. Like it or not, this is the God of the Bible, the God that wherever the gospel goes, women are shown to be valuable, liberated, free, and have incredible honor and worth and value. And so that's part of it right here. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus's friends, part of the ministry team, and one of the first to see him resurrected. It was that Mark 15, 47 that says that she was there and she observed where he was laid. Let's listen to Carson about how this jives with the other accounts. Mary of Magdala is prominent in the first resurrection account of each of the four gospels, but only here does she appear alone? It's quite uncertain how this report is to be reconciled with those of the synoptics. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar um, as, as opposed to John, okay? Perhaps she went to the tomb alone, like John's gospel says, and then returned with some other women as the synoptics state. Right on the tra- uh, uh, tale of Peter and the beloved disciple, If so, we're to think of her as becoming separated from the others after her arrival at the empty tomb in verses 10 through 18. Many argue that the plural we in verse 2 hints that Mary Magdalene was not alone on her first trip to the uh, tomb, although both Aramaic and Greek parallels show that people spoke in the plural as merely a mode of speech without the plural reference. In other words, um, sometimes we like to talk in the uh, second person, don't we? (laughs) Wouldn't that be second person? Be third person? Don't we? Yeah, 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 just like, we, we were there, you know, or whatever. And so that was kind of a, a Greek and Aramaic way of speech. Man, I used to know all that kind of stuff when I was into video games. First person shooter! Third person hovering over. I don't know what that, I, it's been a long time. The vids, the vid games haven't been as much lately. But Christmas is coming. So Mary of Magdalene, going by herself in this account right here, while it was still dark, could you imagine heading to the graveyard while it's dark outside? Some of you are into that stuff. The fact that it was still dark would have made the cave a very black hole indeed. And as she's there, she sees that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. 
This is John's first mentioning of the stone. It wasn't mentioned in the burial record for John. Okay, check out Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, it was the first day of the week began to dawn. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell the disciples he is risen from the dead. And indeed he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. Oh, it's exciting, isn't it? Could you imagine? You're just going to the tomb to like stick some flowers on the grave and boom, the earthquake, stone rolled away, angels showing up, legion of the, or, uh, you know, a a squadron of, of angels, Roman soldiers. Thanks. You know, there's a name for these guys. Throwing back, throwing around, you know, all kinds of stuff. Man, the movie Risen really helps with this. It brings some excitement to you. Or Mark's gospel. In verse 3 of 16, it says, As they were going to the tomb, they were saying among themselves, Selves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? That's going to be a problem. As You know, they're like me. They, they prep as they're already doing the task. It's like, you should have thought of this yesterday. Um, But when they looked, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And then he goes on to say, uh, uh, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? You know, it's kind of special when you go to Gordon's tomb, if that was the, the place, you know, the angels and the sitting and the pointing and all of that, like, oh, I might be looking at it right now. That's pretty cool, you know, but the point is go and tell the disciples and tell Peter, make sure you tell Peter because last time we saw Peter, man, he was pretty bummed out. He had denied Jesus three times and in the final crowing of the rooster in his denial, he looked up and he saw Jesus coming out of Caiaphas's house and they looked at each other. I tell you, I don't know that man. And they lock eyes. And that's, that's what Peter had last before Jesus was crucified. But now the risen Jesus says, uh, is saying, hey, make sure you know that, that Peter needs to meet me there, right? And then we're going to get into it in John, the restoration of Peter. It's going to be a beautiful part, to, a way to end the book. Or Luke's gospel, 24, 5 through 6. They were afraid and they bowed their faces to the earth. And the angel said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? So remember the words of Jesus? He said it quite a few times. But I love this quote. I love that, behold, he is not here, he's risen. And then I love the minor rebuke there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And so Mary, in our verse 2, John 22 Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So she runs, comes to the disciples 
And John, who often referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, that would be in the third person, wouldn't it be? No, come on. Yeah. Rory likes quizzing you on this. Okay. Uh, and interesting, she doesn't know who it is that's taken him, but she, her mind goes to grave robbers. Okay. Her mind doesn't go to the resurrection. Her mind goes to the grave robber, which was a very common thing in the day. Uh, but most grave robbers don't take the time to uh, take the straps of linen off of a body and set them there nicely so that it looks as if the grave clothes just collapsed upon themselves. Nor do those grave rob- robbers very often take the uh, hanky off the face and fold it up nicely and set it next to that. Uh, normally the grave robbers, you know, probably make a grave look like a, a house that's been burglarized, you know, looking through it for anything that may be of some value. And, um, but, she, uh, she speaks of some sort of a grave robbery of some kind. Little does she know she's speaking more truly than she really knows. You know, we've seen that a few times in the scripture where people are speaking truth, prophetically even, and they don't even know what they're saying. Because he has been taken. He has been taken out of the tomb. But notice the we there that causes a little controversy. She went alone, but we do not know where they've laid him. Uh, as referenced earlier. And uh, as she begins to tell this to the disciples, to Peter and to John, Luke 24, 11 tells us that the words, whether it was of Mary or the other women that also brought report, their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. So they come back from the tomb all huffing and puffing and excited and scared all at the same time uh they had seen angels and at this point probably the angelic reference was in there and they're telling all of this exciting easter morning goodness all the disciples are just like you're beside yourself you're crazy this is like idle tales or old wives tales and if you look up old wives tales an old wife tale consists of superstition unverified claims and exaggerated details. And so you got these gals coming back from the tomb, and to the disciples it just seems like a fable, an idle tale, an old wives' tale. But whatever, in verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Now, let's throw up an image that I've got here that might help with you. The early morning race begins, okay? Verse 4 tells us that they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, many people find this early morning race to be something of a humorous scene, right? A foot race, first thing in the morning, to the tomb by big old Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, And big old Peter loses the race, right? For some reason, John wants us to know that he outran Peter. Perhaps as the younger, he was fleeter of foot. Now he does get to the tomb first, but he isn't the first to go in. By the way, that that picture is just kind of a great image to see. Uh, A little fear, a little bit of joy. But I tried to find it. There's a Captain America meme of Captain America racing the Falcon. Have you seen it? And they're out for a jog and uh, Captain America comes and races and beats him and they uh, symbolize it as Peter and John and John outrunning. It's just so great. You guys got to Google it. I couldn't even find it on Google, but that's 20 minutes of your life. You'll never get back right there. Um, So 
It says that the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, verse 5, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Or as Luke 24, 12 says, Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself what had happened. And so John comes, stoops down, looks in, sees the linen clothes, does not go in, but here comes Peter. You can hear him breathing from the distance. Verse six, following John hard on his heels and he goes into the tomb And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief or the face cloth that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Uh, Peter sees, it's this uh, ancient Greek word that means that he contemplated the linen clothes and he scrutinized the linen, all of this is happening, you know, at this first glance of the linen clothes, he contemplates, he observes and scrutinizes that the clothes were in order and neat, still lying there. It looked as if the body had evaporated out of the burial wrappings without any disturbance of their place. This is in uh, contrast to Lazarus raising from the grave or rising from the grave. You remember in John eleven forty four. Jesus rises Lazarus from the dead and says, uh, and it says, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So a number of weeks ago, we studied Lazarus rising from the dead and, and how one day he would die again. You know, as he was risen from the dead in this moment, he didn't quite have that miraculous you know, being able to walk through walls, you know, as Jesus is able to do, or go through grave clothes. No, he comes back in the flesh, and he's kind of, the way they wrapped him, he was kind of doing the, three, the three-legged race, you know, or the one-legged race, or the hop bound out there, and, uh, and had to be helped as he was bound hand and foot. The stone rolled up, set to the side by the one who no longer had use for it, the grave clothes uh, also set uh, the, or rather the hanky rolled up and set to the side as no one had any use for it. It's interesting. Have you ever uh, seen those History Channel documentaries on the Shroud of Turin? You know, a lot of times I laugh at the Shroud of Turin. Oh, come on. You know, that, that cloth that um, has the appearance of the face of a man on it out of blood, you know, and anyone know what I'm talking about? Shroud of Turin? This is a new subject to you guys? A couple, 50%? We got 50% here. Okay, well, Let me read to you from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. It's been suggested that the burial wrappings of Jesus have been preserved in the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin can probably never be positively proved to be a part of the burial wrappings of Jesus, but, quote, the evidence thus far indicates the probable probable conclusions that the shroud is ancient, perhaps from the first century, and that it does not contradict New Testament accounts, and that the image is not a fake, it may well be the actual burial garments of Jesus. 
The image of the shroud is of a crucified male, buried, 5 foot 11 in height, weighing about 175 pounds. His physique was muscular and well built. He's at the estimated age of 30 to 35 years old. His long hair is tied in a pigtail. That did it for me. I was like, not my Jesus. Not my Jesus. No man bun for that guy. Mm-mm. Nope. It's a fake. Uh, besides, I'm like, isn't it ponytail anyways? <laughs> no, it had a little curly cue to it. At the, okay. Um, tied in a pigtail and there is no evidence of decomposition on the cloth. Results of the Shroud of Turin research project, project in October 1978 determined that the shroud is not a painting or a forgery. They determined that uh, its blood is real blood and the image seems to be some type of scorch, though they cannot account for how it was made. Okay. And, uh, and so maybe, you know, I've been kind of hard on those history channel people, you know? Um, and yet what often happens with people as these relics are found and discovered is that we get a little too distracted on what really matters. And we begin to make idols out of these things. Gordon's tomb would be an example of that, or the church of the Holy Sepulcher. You know, when we just get to these places in Israel and we're like, it's got to like lay down on the stones and be like, <laughs> it's like, okay, homie, never said to do that in the great commission. Get up off your keister and go on out and start telling people about Jesus. You know, don't worship the stuff. All right. And so, um, and so got to watch that as we look at historical relics and things and such. But this description, it's been said by multiple commentators uh, regarding the handkerchief or the hanky that's been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up together in a place by itself. Two different guys wrote, the description is powerful and vivid. It's not the sort of thing that one would just dream up. Extraordinarily vivid, F.F. Bruce says, and such as no invention would devise, no freak of imagination could conjure up. No, a freak would probably conjure up something about a pigtail. No, I'm just kidding, just joking. Um, love me a good pigtail. Look at verse 8, John 28. Then the other disciple, by the way, we're just going to verse 10 today. Can you handle it? Okay, good. Then the other disciple, Micah, you teacher's pet, front row and answering the rhetorical questions. That's what I like. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. So remember the great foot race, you know, they both set out for the tomb. Peter gets a little winded. John passes him. John gets to the tomb, but stops and doesn't go in. Just kind of looks from the outside. Then we have Peter come back up. You know, the race is on. looks like pride on the back stretch. Howdy, going to the inside. Okay. Comes on in. It's a country song in case you're wondering. Comes on in, kind of maybe shoves John out of the way. And he just goes right on into the tomb and observes it all. While he's, he's observing, finally, that other disciple who came into the tomb first, goes in and there's this beautiful phrase here he saw and believed john testifies of himself that he came to such a faith in jesus before he actually saw jesus in resurrected form and he took this step of faith and belief not simply because the tomb was empty but for john because the grave clothes were still there and at this point the fledgling faith of the beloved disciple was grounded what he had seen, which was grave clothes, and what he had not seen, which was no body in the grave clothes, right? There in the tomb. Alexander McLaren says, 
John believed, but Peter was still in the dark at this moment. Again, the former had outrun his friend. Some of the best books on the resurrection have been written by lawyers and by men who had originally sent out to disprove it. They thought that the resurrection was the greatest hoax of all history. And if I could just go out and prove that it's wrong, it'll shut all these crazy Christians up. But in their research of the resurrection, many intelligent men, journalists, lawyers, judges, professors, these really intelligent men, I talk a lot about them during Easter's message and stuff, they have all come to the exact opposite conclusion. When they were just fair and looked at uh, evidence as a reasonable inquirer, they all found that Jesus indeed rose from the dead and is the Lord of life like he said that he was. And so uh, you may enjoy this quote by Sir Edward Clark, an English jurist who wrote, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive and over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of men to facts that they were able to substantiate. It's interesting. We have had some some uh, legal cases in the news headlines these days, haven't we? A number, at least three different, four different that come to my mind. And over the course of the last year or so, there have been cases that I, you know, I kind of maybe have an idea on, and maybe I hope that it goes a certain way. And uh, and when it doesn't, I kind of have found myself just like, well, you know, may justice be served, and I'm just kind of trusting the jurors on that one. And uh, each time I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm trusting the jurors. I'm trusting, I'm trusting the rule of law. I'm trusting the rule of law. And, uh, and many of us, we find like, man, there's, there's some solace in that. There's some comfort in that. Of course, we long for the day when true justice is done. Amen. Jesus come, his kingdom come, his will be done. All of the things will be laid out and the king of justice will come and make things right. And we can rest in that. And how wonderful to know, though, that by fair legal jurors and lawyers and judges and professors of law have observed the evidence and have found, as I quote another man, that such evidence as the empty tomb has never broken down yet. That's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. It says for the disciples in verse 9, John 20, verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he may rise again from the dead. So John believed seeing the empty grave clothes seems like Peter's still in the dark at this moment. But at the moment, their hearts were not rumbling and tumbling with scriptures concerning the resurrection. And there are many of them. There are many, many Old Testament scriptures that point to the resurrection of Jesus. The lips of Jesus himself prophesied of it. And uh, and yet none of them were rolling with that. My mom got my son Titus this little National Geographic um, science kit that has a rock tumbler and it comes with all kinds of rocks, you know, and, and, uh, you put the dirty rocks inside of it in a little solution or something. And then it rolls for three days at a time. And I'm going to tell you, that is an annoying thing to have in your house. Like, <laughs> like someone shut the fan off in the bathroom. It's not the fan. It's the rock tumbler. Okay. You know, 
Well, the rock tumbler found its way out to the garage. That's all I have to say. You know, and then I turned it off on vacation. We had to turn it back on again because it didn't go while we were on vacation. So anyways, it's still there, rumbling and tumbling. And the scriptures about the resurrection, you would think they would have been rumbling and a tumbling and a polishing themselves inside the disciples' mind. But no, no clue. Not even thinking about it. Not even a little bit. Okay? And, uh, and so John believed here, kind of being prompted toward that by seeing these grave clothes. Don't worry, guys. They're going to be prompted by it later on. They're going to be using the resurrection in every evangelical sermon that they preach from this point out. It's the crowning proof of Christianity. Verse 10 Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Lindsay has this thing that she does to me when I tell stories that go on for a little while and that have a little bit of a ending. And I'll tell and I'll just get it all excited and then it just kind of fades out and she'll go, good story. You know? And sadly today as we have the worship team come back up, it's kind of how it ends in verse 10. I got you guys all psyched and stoked and the rocks are rumbling and the tumbling inside your head about the resurrection. And you're just like, oh yeah, the race and the seeing the grave clothes and he's alive and he's not with the dead because he's living. And, and then everyone goes home. Thanks. Thanks for that, pastor. That's, that's really disappointing. Okay. Um, by the way, worship team, come back up. Worship team, Johnny. <laughs> Where are you, Johnny? Where's your team up here? Also, I'm going to have to play the piano by myself, and that's going to be really scary. So, Johnny, get back up here. So the disciples went away again to their homes. And uh, good application today. You will go back to your homes today. The question is, in which state of believing will you go home? Jesus tells Mary and Martha in John 11 regarding Lazarus risen from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he'll live. He'll never die. And then Jesus says to her point blank, do you believe this? And I just love that. I love that Jesus just straight up asks, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? And that if you would believe in him today, not anything else, nothing else. You don't believe in your pedigree. You don't believe in your heritage. You don't believe in how wonderful your gray-headed grandparents were when they planted that Lutheran church down in Armiston or wherever, you know, you're not resting in anything. You're not resting in your voter status. You're not resting if you're red or you're blue, or if you trumpet certain social justice movements, you don't rest in that you were a boy scout or that you served at a soup kitchen. You don't rest in anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. Do you believe this? Have you laid aside everything else that you've rested in? As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I oftentimes have the thought of when I'm crossing the threshold into eternity, you know, a lot of times it's when I'm on a road trip and I see that semi-truck coming and I'm like, this is it, this is how we go. 
I don't tell the family that. This is mostly between myself and, you know. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> like the go of the wheel. <laughs> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Or as my wife says, stinking sand. Stinking sand. So as you go home today, like the disciples, what's your trust level in the resurrection of Jesus? I beg of you today, I plead with you today to just surrender. Just rest. Give up the fight. And wholly lean on Jesus' name. The resurrection means that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. By the resurrection of the dead, Romans 1, 4 tells us. The resurrection means that we have assurance of our own resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ Jesus. The resurrection means that God has entered or has an eternal plan for these bodies of ours. There's nothing in the teaching of Jesus that even approaches Gnostic heresy that would say that the flesh cannot inherit eternal life. The resurrection means that Jesus has a continuing ministry And that he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God since he ever lives to make intercession for them. The resurrection means that Christianity and its God are unique and completely different and unique among other world religions. Hindus don't got it. Buddhists don't got it. This is something completely unique among world religions. And finally, the resurrection proves that though it looked like Jesus died on the cross as a common criminal, he actually died as a sinless man out of love and self-sacrificial heart to bear the guilt of our sin. The death of Jesus on the cross was the payment, but the resurrection was the receipt. It showed that the payment was the perfect completion in the plan of God. If you'll set your things aside... Let's rejoice in the implications of the resurrection. If you're a believer with me today in the resurrection, the vindication of Jesus and all of his claims, that he's the Lord of life, eternal God, the way of salvation, the way of truth, He alone saves from sin and He alone gives the promise of eternal life. Why don't you stand with me as we close in this song today and maybe for some it'd be the first time in your life you've ever ever made a good confession of who Jesus is to you. And as you would stand and make that confession, just let God transform your heart right now. Let God transform your mind right now. The disciples that we read about today, 
They had a heart and mind transformation the minute they knew the resurrection was fact. They became different people, bold and courageous, knowing that what they believed was certainly true. And let the Lord do that work in you today. If this is the first time you would confess Jesus as Master and as Lord and Savior from your sins, let the Lord do that perfect work in you today, transforming your heart and mind. Go ahead, Johnny. Let's sing it out with Johnny. Lord, we rejoice uh, on this Lord's Day, remembering the resurrection, that you are not dead in some Palestinian tomb, Lord, that you are at the right hand of the Father. You had a glorious homecoming. The heavens broke out as the King of glory appeared. You sat down at the right hand of the Father, and you ever live to pray for us, to make intercession for us be our ready help in time of need. You know how to help us as you're risen. You know how to help us as you live the life that we are living, Lord. You sympathize with us, God. Let us have rest in that and hope in that. And Lord, we know that you're not just going to stay up there forever hanging out. You're going to come back, Lord. And so we say with great life, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, y'all.